Thank you for joining Crossroads Community Church today. We're so excited about what God's doing in the lives of the people of our church and the lives of those who are listening online. If you have any questions or want more information about our church, visit our website at www.crossroadsccl.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now let's jump into the Word with this week's message. Is there anyone else in here that um, you get these constant phone calls from these either people or businesses or organizations? And, and yeah, exactly. But a lot of times, you, I get this phone call, I don't know about you, and on the other, on the other end of the line, there's this, this promise of something that sounds too good to be true. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Uh, so you, I'll get this phone call, and it's like, hello? And, and then there's a pause for like four seconds, and you already know. <laughs> it's like, you just want a three-day Hawaiian trip. All expenses paid. All you have to do is just call this number and claim your prize, and you're like, okay. Uh, so for some reason, sometimes I, I continue to listen um, I'm not sure why. And I, I've heard this, this, this story a thousand times before, but it sounds too good to be true. They're so excited. You can, you can, you can hear in their, their, um, their language, they're so excited. And you're like, okay, is this true? And they're like, well, of course it's true. You won. Congratulations. You're so lucky, all these things. All you have to do is come and listen to a two-hour presentation. <laughs> and then, of course, you'll need to You'll need to pay your own transportation costs to get there, and um, <clears throat> the gift includes all the accommodations. You're going to be in Hawaii. You're going to stay there for free, eat for free, but you have to pay to get there, and you have to sit there and listen to our presentation, and then your heart sinks because you know there's no way that you can afford to fly to Hawaii. Um, just getting there alone is, is a huge cost, and there's always a catch, isn't there? Uh, we keep biting on these giveaways. I, I remember being young, and I'll, I'll call my parents frugal. I won't say they're cheap, but we would go to a destination. This is so horrible. My parents would kill me if they heard me saying this, but we would go to a destination just to go to timeshares because they promised if you sit there for two hours, we'll give you like $100, or you can stay here for a week, or you can do this and this and this. And, and they had four kids, and they knew, they knew that it would take 20 minutes for them to get us in and out because as, as children, we could not sit still. We were always constantly, one in particular, my mom uh, reminded me, like me and my three sisters got up and pretty much ate everything they had sitting out. <laughs> I know, I know. But we, we've, these are too good to be true. And it happens so often, sometimes we, we, when we think about our, our relationship with the Lord, we think spiritually, we think about God, um, sometimes don't we, don't we doubt um, this free gift that God gives us, this free gift that he gives us in salvation? Sometimes we think, at least if we don't say it out loud, we, we think this, this is too good to be true, isn't it? This is too good to be true. And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, this is what he's trying to establish. We've been through chapters 1 through 3. He's trying to establish beyond all reasonable doubt that the world is guilty before God, both Jew and Gentile, as we heard in chapters 1 and 2. And we're all deserving of God's punishment. 
But we saw at the end of chapter 3 last week, Pastor Anthony was sharing that in God's grace, He's provided a means by which we can be declared righteous, we can be made right, or we can receive justification through faith. And that means that we can escape God's wrath, escape God's punishment through faith in His Son Jesus and what He's accomplished on the cross. If we are being honest for just a moment, uh, let's not be you know, super spiritual. In, in some regard, does that not sound too good to be true? All we have to do is exhibit a measure of faith and receive this free gift of salvation. And here's the thing, I think Paul knows that. I think as Paul's sharing, Paul's thinking in his mind, you know, this is too good to be true because if you remember, the, the Jews uh, and very religious believed that you were saved by obedience to the law. You were saved through, uh, through works, right? And, and it was impossible to keep all the law. We talked about this. It was, it was impossible to keep the law. And so, the Jews believed that if, if I did this and I did this, I obeyed this rule, I obeyed this law, that's how I received uh, salvation. And Paul's, Paul's shifting now and he's saying, no, that we receive salvation by our belief and trust in, in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. And it's through faith, not works. And so Paul demonstrates through this Old Testament Scripture, he chooses the, most, the best illustration he can choose. He uses Abraham. Abraham is an Old Testament figure. Um, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Jewish rabbis claimed that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds. Every day of his life, he was perfect. If anyone could have made became righteous, I guess what I'm trying to say. If anyone was to be righteous through works, it would have been Abraham. Rather, Paul now shifts and he's talking about Abraham being saved through faith, and we'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. But as I said, we've been reading through the book of Romans for the last few weeks. We're on chapter 4 today. Pastor Anthony has said this, but Romans is the constitution of the Christian faith. It's the manifesto of, of who we are in Jesus Christ. And Romans is divided into five chapters. In chapter 1 through 3, Paul talks about sin. And, and sin is why the gospel is so essential, because all of us sin. The Bible says all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about salvation, and that's where we're going to be today. Chapter 6 through 8, Paul talks about sanctification. It's this process we, that, we beca- that we become made right in God's eyes. Chapters 9 through 11 talks about sovereignty and his plan for the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in chapters 12 and 16, Paul talks about service. How do we practically live out the gospel? And so again, last week, Pastor Anthony preached from the end of Romans chapter 3. And Anthony taught us that Paul was teaching that we are justified, we are made right by faith. So we receive justification through faith. But what does faith really mean? And that's the question that we're going to be posing this morning. What is faith? Um, if you, if I, did I ask you to pull out your Bibles already? Okay, good. <laughs> so as we read our text today, we're going to be answering this question and we're going to start in Romans chapter 4. The dictionary, which isn't the best um, 
place to define faith, but we'll start there. Um, The dictionary defines faith as complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And of course, there's a biblical answer, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But I want to ask you this morning yourselves, rhetorically, of course, how would you define faith? How do you define faith? What does faith look like to you? I, I think perhaps I'm, I'm using myself in, as an example, so I don't want to throw all of us into to one barrel, but I think our definition of faith maybe looks different than the way Paul describes it to be, because I think our definition, definition of faith is often shaped by our culture. Our definition of, of faith is, is often shaped by our experiences in life what we've been through. Um, I've heard this before. and um, Culture more and more tells us, do whatever you want. Do what makes you feel happy. You heard people say, you know, you do you. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you happy, that's what you do. And so some, for some of us, our faith might be shaped by what our culture says that faith should be. And then rather for some of us, our experience, for example, if, if I feel like I have to, to perform for my earthly father um, to feel loved, to feel like a part of the family, you know, if, if I'm not getting straight A's or I'm not doing this and this and this, and I, I feel like I have to perform, then perhaps our view of our Heavenly Father is going to be shaped based on that experience. And we might look at God and say, God is a performance-based God. That if I just do this and this and this and this, He will be happy. If I do this and this and this, then I will be made righteous. Paul's assertion, though, is that the truth of the Gospel is not dependent on works, which Anthony talked about last week, and it's certainly not dependent on whether or not you and I have enough faith to believe it's true. The gospel is not dependent on you and I at all. The truth of the gospel is made more real to us as we both believe and place our trust in Jesus Christ. And so chapter 4, Paul gives this illustration, this example of, of what is and what isn't faith. And again, he uses Abraham. He's the greatest example of faith um, to have ever lived and through the Bible. So if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, um, the first point we want to see is this. Faith is not ours to boast about. Faith is not ours to boast about. Romans chapter 4, it says this. What, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul then goes on to use David as an example. He said, David says the same thing when he speaks the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So Paul uses this example, Abraham, the father of the Jewish, Jewish nation. And then he uses this other example as if to say, hey, I'm not just using one example. There's many examples of, of faith throughout the Bible. And he uses David, arguably, or probably not even arguably, the greatest um, king of Israel. And so Paul's continuing on from chapter 3, attempting to solidify this idea that we are justified by faith, not works, through the introduction of this important Jewish Testament figure, Abraham. Again, in my eyes, to a Jew, Abraham would have been incredibly unlikely, an unlikely uh, example, because again, they thought that Abraham outlined to them that faith is by works. Paul, um, the Jewish leaders commonly taught that Abraham was faithful in keeping all the law. Even before all of the law was given to Moses, Abraham kept the law. They believed that because of Abraham's devotion to keeping the law, that they too even deserved justification based on Abraham's devotion. And so Paul is agreeing in this text. He's saying if Abraham was justified by works or by keeping the law, then Abraham would have had something to boast about. If, if you or I are able to keep the law, we would have something to boast about. Because the law is impossible to live up to. If, if you and I are able to keep the law, we would have something to boast about. But Paul says, not before God. The law was not meant as this, this uh, definition of you do this and you receive salvation. The law shows us of our sinfulness. It shows us how desperately we need Jesus. Without the law, and and when I talk about the law, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about hundreds of rules and regulations that they had to follow. And so Paul essentially says, he's he's going through in, in verse uh, what is it? On verse 6, Paul says, don't take my word for it. Let's look in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because Abraham believed, because of his faith, he was considered righteous before God. And so Paul's going back to the Old Testament to show the Jews in Romans chapter 4, he's saying this is not a new idea. This is not a, a revolutionary doctrine. This isn't this radical idea. This is teaching from the beginning of Scripture. This is what God says. David says the same uh, thing when he speaks the blessedness of, of one who God credits righteousness apart from works. So Paul's trying to say, listen, this is not just something that I've come up with. This is the teaching from the beginning. And here's the point. As Anthony said last week, we are justified by our faith. We are made righteous, we are made right in the eyes of God by our faith. Human effort has nothing to do with it. You might be asking the question this morning, I I get what you're saying, but but even to to exhibit a, a measure of faith, it requires me to do something. Well, really it doesn't, and I'm going to show you that in just a second. 
But we cannot boast of our own righteousness. We cannot boast of our salvation or even our faith. Righteousness is credited to us by God through faith, and because of that, He gets all the glory. There's nothing that we can boast about. We are, apart from God, sinners in desperate need of salvation. And the law shows us that. It shows us of our deep sin. It shows us that we are sinners and we need Him. There have been times in my life where I've been incredibly prideful and I've said, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person without Him. Obviously, (laughs) that mindset has changed a lot over the years. What I'm saying is, we have to realize and understand, without Jesus Christ, we are a mess. There is nothing good that we can ever do. Hebrews 12, chapter 2 says um, that, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Have you guys heard that passage before? Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so let's think of it Because faith is at times hard for us to wrap our minds around, I think. It has been for me in the past. But if Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, meaning He is the originator of our faith, He is the one who perfects our faith. He's the one who sustains our faith. As we continue to trust and believe in Him and what He did on the cross, He perfects our faith. So if, if, if Jesus is the author of our faith, meaning He establishes our faith in Him, He perfects our faith, He helps to sustain our faith. If He do, does those things, then, then what honestly do we have to boast about? If Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, what have we contributed to our own righteousness, our own righteousness, our faith, our salvation, apart from accepting it from God as a free gift? And that's the thing, nothing. We, we and I think this is our culture. We did not earn this. This is a free gift that our good Heavenly Father who loves us is giving to us this morning to a bunch of people who do not deserve it. I don't deserve to be made righteous in God's eyes. I don't deserve to have my faith perfected in Him. But He's giving us this free gift this morning. Every year, at the end of the year, have you guys ever been to... um, one of your, your children's field days. Um, so uh, I have two younger kids in elementary school now, and so we are pretty much there all day now uh, on field day. But I love field day because it, I just, I love seeing the kids run, and ru- run around and feel like this pride. It doesn't, to them, well, to most of them, I should say, it doesn't matter if they get first or sixth place, they get a ribbon and they're excited about it, Right? Um, but every year at elementary school at Pine River, they do a field day. And this past year, last year, Kaylee did really, really good. Um, she's very short, so any, any kind of like running or anything, you know, she, 
she tends to be behind because her legs are shorter than everybody else. And so she got, she did really well, really, really well. So I want to use this as an illustration. What if my daughter came to me at the end of the field day to show me all of her ribbons? She got two first place, two second place, you know, a third, a fourth, or whatever. And what if I took that ribbon from her, all those ribbons, and pinned them to my chest? (laughs) What if I ran down the field, started screaming, and like, look at me, look what I did, look what I did? People would look at me and be like, you're nuts, you're crazy. They'd also consider me a terrible dad for taking my daughter's ribbons and taking credit for it and stealing her spotlight. This is, this, is, this is hers. And when we boast of our salvation, we boast, we boast about our righteousness, we insinuate that our faith has anything to do with us, that's exactly what we're doing to God. We're taking credit for things that aren't ours to take credit for. We're stealing the spotlight from God. Next to the cross, anything we could accomplish in and of our own strength just completely falls flat. There's nothing that I could ever do. Understand this. There's nothing I could ever do that would compare to the cross, the work that Jesus did on the cross. If I was the greatest pastor in the whole world, I, I could preach incredible messages. I saw thousands of people get saved. That would be, that would be this big in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross. All boasting is eliminated in salvation. All boasting is eliminated in salvation. When we realize what Jesus did on the cross for us, we cannot boast about it. So faith is not ours to boast about. The second point I want us to write down is faith is not religious. Faith is not religious. Verse 9 says, Is is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign or a seal of righteousness that they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he was the father of all who believed, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who would also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father, Abraham, had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless." And so Paul, in verse 1, he says, is this blessedness only for those who are circumcised? And he's referring to the Jews here. So is this blessing only to the Jews who have been circumcised? Since many Jews regarded um, uncircumcised Gentiles as lawless and sinners, Paul again reinforces what he had said in in chapters 1 and through 3. Paul goes on to ask, was Abraham righteous? Was Abraham's righteousness credited to him before or after he was circumcised? And Paul argues that faith came first, then the covenant of circumcision. 
For this reason, faith is the mean of right relationship with God and not the ritual of circumcision. Paul's saying faith was the means Faith was the means of right relationship with God, not this ritual of circumcision. And he argues, Paul goes on to argue that God declared Abraham righteous while he was still uncircumcised so that he would become the father of all who believe, Gentiles alike, being not circumcised. And so in this way, God's promise to Abraham that he would become father of many nations, including the Gentiles, comes to pass. So circumcision was this, by the Jews, this religious ritual that they, that they had to, to do. And, and here's the point I guess I'm trying to make. Faith is not upholding religi- religious rituals. And, and, and as confidently and as easy as it might be for me to say that, how often do we use our religiousness as a cheap substitute for faith? We say things like this, or we think things like this. Say, God, I'm baptized. Lord, I take communion every month. Father, I go to church every Sunday. If by definition, faith is complete trust and obedience and confidence in someone or something. We ask our question that we ask this question, I'm sorry. Well, well doesn't my religiousness or or my upholding religious rituals by being baptized or or by going to church every Sunday or by by singing the hymns or aren't these religious rituals don't they constitute me as trusting and showing confidence in Christ? And again, this is a rhetorical question, so you don't have to respond to this, but let me ask you this. <laughs> this is kind of silly, but if you swim in the ocean, does that make you a fish? Does, does, does sitting in the garage make you a car? Then, then, and and I'm, I'm pointing at myself this morning, so please hear me. This is not a judgmental finger point. This is myself included. I at times can be very religious. But why would going to church every Sunday, singing songs, doing a devotion, or even baptism or communion be the means by which we define ourselves as righteous? None of these things are bad, obviously. And all of these things, as a matter of fact, we should practice as believers. But practicing these things as a means to to seem, to feel like you have a lot of faith or to, to seem righteous doesn't make us righteous any more than eating a fish stick makes me a fisherman. <laughs> and so Paul asserts again that we are, credited, we are credited righteousness by faith. Third point. And this one is a big one for me. Faith is not dependent on my own perception. Faith is not dependent on my own perception. Verse 18 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so he became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So Abraham believed, he trusted in the hope of God's ability to fulfill what he had promised to him. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. I mean, imagine this for a second if you can. Imagine being 99 years old. I mean, just, <laughs> just that alone, it's like, okay. But imagine being 99 years old. You have no kids. And God tells you, you will become the father of many nations. He says, your, your descendants will outnumber the sky, the stars in the sky. Then you look over to, at your wife, who's pretty much the same age as you. She's unable to have kids. I mean, am I the only one in here that would just laugh like crazy? And here's the thing. If we remember, Abraham does the same thing. We go back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. The Lord speaks this promise to Abraham, and what does it say? It says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at age of 90? Abraham did the same thing that we would do. The father of the Jewish uh, nation. The guy that, that said to, to live according to every law that there was before the law was even fully given to him. And so to some degree we see Abraham here doubting what God's speaking over him. Is anybody, can we be honest for a second? I always ask that. <laughs> Has anyone ever doubted their faith in Jesus Christ? Has anyone ever doubted? It's okay to admit that. It's okay to admit that. I think if you've not, you're an incredibly, you're an incredible person. I'll just say that. Abraham, who's, who's said to be this incredible man, right? Falls in the ground and laughs at, at what God says. And I want, us to, I want us to understand this because I think so often this is where things go wrong in, in, in our faith. Like we, we think that, we think that if, if we have any doubt... If we have any doubt about Jesus Christ being the means by which we're saved or, or, be, just, or believing in God in general, that we're this terrible person. And God must look at us like, like how, how could you? But faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. We think that way. We think, if, I'm a, if I have faith, then there must not be doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is believing and, and trusting despite my doubt. Faith is believing and trusting despite my doubt. Abraham certainly had some measure of doubt. I mean, he, there's none of us in this room at 99 years old 
We hear the voice of the Lord who says, we're going to, my wife is going to get pregnant. There's not one of us in this room that would honestly believe that we're not going crazy and hearing voices. (laughs) Abraham had some doubt, but what proved him faithful was his belief and trust in God's promise despite his doubt. I want to ask this because, I, again, this is, this is where I fall short in my faith. This is where I struggle the most. How often do we look at our lives, do we look at what we're facing, and we, we, we feel disappointed, we feel angry at God because what we thought our lives would look like isn't at all what our lives actually look like. like how, do we, how often do we just face everyday situations? I'm late to work. God, seriously? You know, somebody says something to you, you know, at school or whatever. You get just frustrated. I mean, two weeks ago, I I heard a person, and I am not criticizing them because I've been there. I heard a person, you know, going through some difficulty and them say, like, God just does not love me. Like, how often... Do we allow our perception of situations or circumstances that we're facing cloud our belief or our ability to trust in God and His promises? We look around and we see like, okay, finances are really tight. I know God promised to to sustain us. I know God promised that He's, I mean, I'm not expecting a, you know, publisher's clearinghouse to come to my house and with balloons say you won the million dollars, but, you know, Things are tight, and you get angry because you're like, God, where are you? You're going through difficulty in your marriage. And you're frustrated, and you're angry because you're like, God, where in the heck are you? We were down at camp this year at Wheaton. Uh, not, not down, I guess up. At Wheaton, Illinois. Um, with our students, and there's one, there's a period of, I think, about two hours that um, the students go off, and they, they tell the youth pastors, just, we want you to have uh, just some time to yourself. So I remember going out to this, there's this um, baseball field right in front of me, and, there, and then there's grass, and it was hot that day, so I was looking for a tree to, to lay under, but I just laid down in the grass, and I'd been in a season of just being frustrated in my faith. Have you ever been there? Like, just frustrated with your faith. And uh, been going through, like, these, like, just feeling really anxious a lot. So I've been dealing with some anxiety, and because of that, because of my anxiousness, it caused me to be frustrated at God. I'm like, I hate this feeling of being anxious. Like, God, I, I, just, I want you to just take this from me because I, I hate this feeling. It's not something I enjoy. It's not something that I'm like, I love being anxious. Nobody does. So I laid down the grass, and I just... We had an incredible week at camp. God did some incredible things. Personally, this 
was one of those moments in my, in my faith that I'll never forget. I lay down in the grass and I looked up at the sky and it was a beautiful day. The sun was out, it was shining bright. And so I'm laying there and you just close your eyes and you know how you can just feel like the heat of the sun on your body. So I'm closing my eyes and I'm, I'm praying and then all of a sudden I felt it get cool for a second and a cloud had gone over the sun. And I opened my eyes immediately because you can tell even with your eyes closed. And there's this, there's this giant cloud that's over the sun. And I felt, I, I heard the Lord speak to me, not audibly, but in my spirit. He, he said to me, I, I looked at the cloud and of course the cloud is covering the sun, but the sun's still behind the cloud. Are you following me? The sun is still there. I, I look around and there's evidence that the sun still exists because it's light out around me, right? Um, and yet the cloud, this cloud comes over and is blocking it. And the Lord said to me, your frustration with this anxiety is clouding your perception of me. You're looking at the cloud and wondering where I am. You're looking at this cloud and wondering where I am. And I'm, I'm not left. I'm, I'm unchanged. I'm right there. In fact, if you were to open your eyes and look around, you would see evidence of me all around you. And in that moment, I realize when I'm going through circumstances or situations in my life that don't go the way that I want them to go, my focus is not on where it should be. My focus is on whatever is clouding the situation. My anxiousness. Going through some issues with kids. You know, being a youth pastor and all that encompasses. My focus is on what's blocking the sun. And God's saying, listen, I'm right here. I've not changed. I've not left. Look around. There's evidence of me all around you. Faith cannot be, our faith cannot be dictated or dependent on our perception. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we live by faith, not sight. He's saying we live by faith in what we believe and trust in, not by what we see. And how many of us today are living by what we see and not what we believe in? and supposedly trust in. So, so if, these are, if these are what faith is not, these are some examples of what faith is not, you know, how do we determine what faith is and then how do we you know, begin to practice? So what do we need to do? We've seen some examples of what faith is. I was never good, great at math. I was horrible at math, by the way. Um, but I'm going to use an equation today. <laughs> This might be the only time I've ever used an equation in an illustration. And this is not a mathematical equation, obviously, but I mean, I guess you could say that it is. But here's our equation. Blank plus blank equals faith. Blank plus blank equals faith. So the biblical definition of faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11.1. Let's put that up there. It says, now faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things not seen. Can we say this all together? Now, faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things not seen. 
And so the definition of faith contains two components. The definition of faith contains two components. You can go ahead and put it up there. Belief plus trust equals faith. Belief belief plus trust equals faith. You see, it's, it's one thing to believe that something is true, but to trust it actually relying on the fact that something is true. But trust, I'm sorry, is actually relying on something is true. There's a difference. I want to, um, I'll use this for really quick. Okay. I'm going to sit in this chair, right? Well, first of all, before, before I sit down, we, we all understand that this is a chair, right? Or a stool, I guess. And, and, and this stool was created to support human weight, right? So, if I were to sit on this, sitting on this stool is, is trusting that this stool can actually support my weight. Believing that it can support my weight is different than trusting that it can support my weight. We went to Gatlinburg. Who's ever been to Gatlinburg before? It's my favorite place in the world. It's so beautiful. The mountains, the, con- the country, the bluegrass music. I love all of it. it except for one thing. There's these sky chairs. Has anybody ever done those things? Yes. <laughs> you, you, you sit in these chairs. You sit in these chairs, and these chairs are attached to a wire probably like this big, right? And I'm looking at this wire like, okay, this wire is supposed to hold all of our weight. And there's hundreds of chairs on this wire. And, we're, and it takes you up to the top of this mountain. And I'm like, I'm standing there. My, uh, Jamie and I are, um, uh, my goodness, I can't, I, my brain just went blank. But our um, honeymoon was in Gatlinburg. And so we went there, and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm terrified of heights. I mean, I am terrified of heights. It's not like this chair takes you just up right against the ground and like you're, I mean, it's like 30 feet underneath you and, and you're looking and it's like, it's like I know in my mind that I believe that these chairs are, support, are supposed to support my weight along with everybody else. There's just something in me that doesn't trust that if I get on that chair, I'm not going to fall to my death. And if, if, if you ever go to Gatlinburg, you have to do that. You have to do that. I'm telling you, you have to. But understanding these two aspects of faith are crucial. crucial belief and trust. Because here's the thing. Many people believe certain facts about Jesus. Many people believe and, and will argue that the Bible declares what the Bible declares about Jesus to be true, but knowing the facts to be true is not what the Bible means by faith. Knowing facts about Jesus or knowing about Jesus is not faith. That's not enough. The biblical definition requires both belief and trust in Jesus. Believing that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and was resurrected is not enough. We have to both believe and trust. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that even the demons believe in God and acknowledge those facts. 
So we have to personally rely on the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. In a sense, we have to sit in the sky chair of faith. (laughs) We have to sit in the sky chair of faith of our salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. The faith that God requires of us for salvation is belief in what the Bible says about Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and fully trusting and fully surrendering our lives to him. Um, I want to invite the worship team to come on up. Even in light of all that, you might be in this room this morning because as I'm preparing, I'm feeling this way. You might be sitting here and you're like, I I understand that. I can comprehend that. But having faith or exercising faith sometimes is incredibly difficult. And I would agree. Exercising faith can be incredibly difficult. But I want us to consider something. I want us to consider how much we exercise faith every single day of our life without even knowing it. When you set your alarm last night, you had faith and trusted that that alarm would go off at the time that you said it would go off, correct? When the light turned green on the way to church this morning, think about this. You had faith and trusted the person on the right side of you that when when your light turned green, that they weren't going to go straight through that light and T-bone you. You trusted and had faith in someone that you never knew, that you don't even know, that you've never met in your life. When you go out to eat, you have faith that the the cook doesn't add any special ingredients to your food. When you buy a product off Amazon, we, we believe and we trust that the product that we actually buy is the product that we're actually going to receive. When we go to the bank and we withdraw money, we believe and trust in the bank that when I go to withdraw my money, the money's going to be there for me to withdraw. When you married your spouse, you, you believe and you trust, you had faith that this person would be committed to you and only you for the rest of your life. And so we exhibit faith every single day. We exhibit faith in things and people that we've never met. And God's not asking us to blindly just believe and trust in Him. The reason I got to the place in my marriage that I believed and trusted in my wife enough to marry her is because I got to know her. I spent time with her. Sat on the couch and watched Star Wars together just to make sure that she was into this like I was. (laughs) Prayed together. I celebrated her accomplishments. I I, I was there for her when she was going through difficult things. And so we think, like, it's so hard to just believe and trust. It's so hard to exhibit and, 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 and live out faith. We do it every day. And we do that blindly. We blindly believe and trust that somebody's not going to just run through a light and just take us out. God's not asking us to blindly believe and trust in Him. He offers us relationship this morning. He says, I am with you always. There's not a day, not a moment in your life that you experience, whether you're a believer or not, 
There's not a moment that we are separated from God. He is always with us. He's always right beside us. The Bible says he never leaves us. He never abandons us. He never forsakes us. And God gives us this opportunity, this free gift. He says, hey, I created you perfectly in my image, and I want to know you. I want to get to know you. I want you to experience me. And do you think that God doesn't already know that trusting and believing in him for us isn't somewhat difficult? Of course he knows that. And he says, how do we do that? Spending time with him. Clinging to him. When, when the perception, when our perception would say, God is nowhere around, cling to me. All you who are broken and weary and I will give you rest, cling to me. So why is it so important to define faith? Well, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Ephesians 2, 8 says, without faith, we cannot be saved. Without faith, the Christian life cannot be what God intends it to be. 